Hello and welcome to the test recording of a as yet unnamed and possibly likely to be doomed never to be broadcast political podcast with myself, Mark Pack and Stephen Tall. So Stephen, should we maybe start off by telling our lucky listeners, well I say listeners, I mean that in itself is perhaps overly optimistic, <laughs> our possible listener, yep, Mrs. who we Callis. are. <laughs> yep. Stephen, you are, you are dressed particularly finely for a podcast, I have to say. I am, but it's, I, I kind of assumed it would be like the BBC and you'd have to turn up in a dinner jacket uh, in order to broadcast. But and no, dear I'm listener, on... he is pretty much in a dinner jacket. Yeah, it is an awesome shirt. It's a velvet Stephen. ensemble. And uh, no, I'm off to my work Christmas party rather than trying to celebrate the podcast in, uh, in particular regalia. But sorry, I, my name is Stephen Tool, and uh, uh, you I used, used to be somebody. I used to be someone. Um, so I used to be in a kind of, you know, I even hit the top fifty of the Lib Dems, didn't I? Ian Dale's old list of, uh, of top politicians. Well, I, I remember you having a video uh, of yourself with an ironing board that yeah. was a little bit of a YouTube hit back in the days before anyone watched it was YouTube. When I was, uh, you know, testing out uh, going naked uh, for a profession. <laughs> And so I just took off my shirt in those days uh, for, uh, uh, for video recording uh, to satirise David Cameron's web camera, as it was. And that, of course, led up to a naked run in Whitehall, which is probably what most people, uh, if they've ever heard of me, will know me for, uh, fantastically. My children will be so proud. Um, but I used to be editor of Lib Dem Voice from about 2007 through to 2015, and I shared those honours with Mark. Uh, so yeah, I um, wish to make clear that all the YouTube videos in existence of me, as far as I'm aware, show me fully clothed. I suspect about 98% of them show me wearing a suit, but I have unusually dressed down today. It is a little yeah. bit of a shame this is only an audio recording, I think, but I'm actually in a t-shirt, which those people who know me well will be somewhat surprised by. Especially in December, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, well, some of my family live in Australia, so I, I'm, I'm liking to thinking, thinking of them with my dress sense today. Uh, as, as, as you mentioned, Steve and I edited Lib Dem Voice with you for a few years um, and then have gone on to edit my own blog and my own email newsletter about, about the party. Um, I also sit on more party committees than probably uh, I can remember. Sitting on one party committee is more than anyone can or should remember, I think. But, uh... Absolutely, and I, I definitely fail that, fail that test. So I suspect we'll find I will be a little bit more uh, the loyalist in my instinctive <laughs> views of the party as we, as we discuss these things. Um, but maybe before we get on to the Dems themselves, perhaps we should just, if it's not too meta, think about what actually makes for a good political podcast. Yeah, well, that's, that would be a good thing for us to consider, yeah. wouldn't it, really? Um, what does make for quality uh, before we venture? Uh, we've given this a lot of thought. Yeah. Been, um, so, obviously, the, I, I find political podcasts with, you know, where one of the presenters has one syllable in their name and the other has two syllables in their first name work particularly well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I was, th- I was trying to think of what my favourite political podcast is if I was only allowed to listen to one podcast. Your Desert Island podcast. My, I think my Desert Island podcast is probably not enough champagne, okay, which not is, uh, has a brilliant theme tune, so it also doubles as my Desert Island song choice. Okay. Uh, but it is by two, uh, I guess, new Labour figures, Fabian-type Labour Party figures. One of whom is a former Lib Dem, who now hates the Lib Dems over things like tuition fees, etc. Um, and the other whom I think never was a Lib Dem, never has been a Lib Dem. And I think the thing I really like about Not Enough Champagne, that they get really, that works really well for me, is that because they're Labour figures, I disagree with them a lot of the time. 
but I agree with him a bit of the time, and that just gives me enough sort of mental self-discipline to carry on paying attention to them when when I'm disagreeing with them. And I think that's a really healthy thing, is to listen to people who you disagree with but make you think. And if you disagree with them too much, you just end up hating them and not listening and closing your mind. So well, I disagree with that entirely. <laughs> um, no, actually, I do. I do agree. Uh, so I'm not, I don't listen to many podcasts because yeah. I, I honestly, you see people kind of make the recommendations. This is of a podcasts. brilliant choice. To, I know. I know. Isn't you should it? Have asked this before yeah. you <laughs> why, me why did I not ask you this before? I feel <laughs> I feel our plan is going wrong. Uh, Only four minutes thirty eight seconds in. <laughs> Um, it seems longer already. Uh, no, I just... I, yeah, it I don't seems know a lot people, longer to the I, listener. I don't know how people find the time um, for all these podcasts. Um, so uh, I am very selective. The, the only political one I really listen to is the New Statesman mm. uh, podcast, which actually therefore does share some similarities mm. with uh, uh, your choice of champagne. And who does that? Is that Stephen Bush? It's Stephen Bush and Helen Lewis. Yeah. Lewis. Uh, that's a good um, combo, I can imagine. So, yeah, it works well as a combination, and they combine the political and the kind of cultural as well. Uh, and so it's a whilst it's rooted in the politics and uh, looks at things through a centre left lens, mm. uh, it's uh, it is wide ranging enough, and they have people like um, Francis Cook from the Prison Reform Trust, for yep. example, was uh, was on recently. So there are other issues that are, are discussed yeah. as well. I, I guess that touches on an interesting point, which I've heard other other people in slightly different formats talk about, which is whether it is better or worse to pay attention to people who are doing similar things to you. Mm-hmm. So, for example, CGP Grey, who uh, fans of CGP Grey will cringe if I describe him as an educational YouTuber. Right. That is probably the easiest way of describing what, what he sometimes does. Um, and I've heard him talk in the past on podcasts about how he likes... He now prefers to ignore what other educational YouTubers are doing mm-hmm. on the basis that he wants to be original and creative... Yeah and not to feel cramped, therefore, by the conventions of what everyone else is doing, and that he almost rather would be his own, his own person. Yeah. Um, and I can see the attraction of that. I guess what is maybe a little bit different about politics is quite often, more often you're maybe responding to other people. So yeah. Politics is more a sort of a sense of an ongoing debate. But I wonder if that's maybe an appeal to sort of think, well, if I don't know what other people are saying on other podcasts, I can, I can more say my own thing and maybe say something that's different and interesting. That's the upside, is that you kind of, uh, because you have to think hard yourself without borrowing and magpieing other people's opinions from whether it's podcasts or Twitter or wherever it is that you, whatever social media you get your, see your views from, that you have to think hard and deep yourself. And that's kind of why I still miss the old blogging days um, before uh, the interweb went hyper uh, with social media, because people then had to sort of put together three, four, five hundred words at least in order for most people to read uh, a blog and feel like it was worth uh, persevering with. So you actually had to have a beginning, a middle and end. You had to construct an argument. You had to rationalise things. Whereas, of course, in Twitter, the reverse incentives apply in that the quicker you can be, the ruder you can be, the the more uh, often insulting you can be, the more likely it is to get picked up and retweeted. But wasn't that always a bit the way with particularly blog headlines? I remember, I can't remember what the exact headline was, but I remember 
I th in a sort of bit of banter between the likes of you and me and James Graham and others, we worked out what the perfect headline, clickbait headline was for yeah, Liberal yeah. Democrats. It involved Ian Dale and Doctor Who were, were yeah, the two covered all, key all clickbait magnets. Um, and so I, there is still a post on my blog of something like Ian Dale might feature in the next Doctor Who or yeah. something something implausible like that. So I'm not sure those those glory days were quite as glorious as, as we now you probably now fondly remember. You're probably right, but I, I think there was something about putting together a blog that you actually had to think through in advance mm. what you were going to say. Uh, you know, you had to have your kind of essay plan, and I think that's lacking. So, and that's the uh, that's the downside, I guess, mm. of, um, uh, of, of the uh, hyped up kinetic world. So, just just to be clear, um, and I'm saying this looking at your extensive and detailed notes you have in front yeah, of you, yeah, Stephen. Yeah. You're saying there's a lot of value in working out in advance what you're going to say. It's, is that right? Yeah. All right, uh, <laughs> listener. He is talking about my. I think four scrawled names um, and actually I'll tell you why those names are scrawled down is because uh, I said well I don't listen to podcasts so I'm going to come up with a different uh, <laughs> kind of take on this which is who are my top political commentators mm. who are the ones that I read and will try and make a, a point of reading and I've actually already mentioned one which is Stephen Bush from the New Statesman incredibly well informed indeed incredibly well informed mm. about Labour politics in particular but also very astute when it comes to just looking at the scene more generally. I like to read uh, also Matthew Paris, mm. uh, even though he is uh, a Conservative and an active Conservative. He is deeply thoughtful mm. um, and also one of those people who and this can sometimes irritate me, but it's really useful, he will often intuit his view. And it's not necessarily based on a rational, evidence-based look at a policy, it's just his gut feeling, and he will express it in, in a way that makes you Really think. He's um, also a lovely man. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. I've only uh, sort of appeared on the sort of in the media, I think, with him once. But I, it, I, I do remember how, you know, quite often during the Lib Dem heydays, um, I guess this probably happened to you as well, I would be rolled out as the Lib Dem <laughs> on a panel of three or four, yeah. where the other, the, the, others, days. <laughs> the others were sort of properly experienced, grizzled veterans who picked up national broadcasting awards and the like, and then yeah. there'd, be, there'd be me. Yeah. And sometimes, in fact, not infrequently, those other people, you sort of felt that they were a little bit arrogant and condescending mm -hmm. of, oh, that person we've never heard of for the party we don't think a lot of in the corner. And you know. yeah. But Matthew was absolutely not that at all. And he, it, 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 the way he sort of contributed to that, that, that little bit that, 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 that we did, it really made me feel like he was actually listening and valuing what I yeah. said. That may not have been the truth at all. Who knows? But I just thought, that's a nice man. Well, he's one of those dying breeds of liberal conservatives. Do, mm. you, remember, do you remember them? Oh, yeah. Um, they, they were quite big in the 70s. Yeah, them and their huskies. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I like reading him. Don't always agree with him, but I, 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 will, I know when I read an article by him, I'll be made to think a bit deeper. And the other person, um, I didn't want to score an all-male list. Um, so the other person who uh, I have a lot of time for is Rachel Sylvester, who mm. writes in The Times. And now, actually, I don't read very much of her at all, so tell so me more. She, she is, you can clearly tell that she is someone who has a very active uh, list of MPs she's in touch with across mm. all parties, particularly, I suspect, Conservatives, mm. I guess, working for Times, but, uh, but across all parties. So you get some of the most well-informed insights from her, and you'll get a sense of where the cabinet is going. So again, it's not necessarily do you agree. Mm. But it's do you learn something new and you, are you forced to think afresh about a topic that you may well have made up your mind about, but nonetheless will challenge you. Yeah. I guess that's, that's the common thing yeah. here, isn't it? It's just yeah. not being within your 
own mm, uh, little bubble. Absolutely. It's the newspaper you read or social media yeah. circles you're in or whatever it might be, it's, are you actually going to be uh, feel confident enough to want to be challenged and occasionally to have your view changed as a result? Yeah. Um, I think that's three names. It was three. It was yeah. three. I thought you said you had four names. I did have four names. I, I, think, uh, I was hoping you'd ask me about that. Uh, so, so, about name. this fourth person. Yeah. Um, fourth one, uh, well, I almost missed him out simply because uh, he's partly covered off by Stephen Bush mm. in that he's from the centre left. It's Raphael Baer. Ah, yes. He writes in The Guardian. Mm. And uh, I put him in just because he is the best writer, mm. I think, in politics. Um, and it's, it's not necessarily, he does challenge, he does make you think. But it's also, it's just beautifully written mm. stuff. I mean, it's just, I think he's uh, the writer that most journalists would like to write like, because he can just uh, spin phrases out of nothing. Mm. And from beginning to end, it is something that is just kind of, you know, the perfect prose style, yeah. in my view. So, I, yeah, I just enjoy reading him, whether or not I agree or disagree. It's just a pleasure. So we are now going to demonstrate how we are not nearly as good as any of them, yeah. aren't we? Um, I guess uh, I guess we should talk about Brexit. What's that? Yeah. So, uh, recording as we are early in September yeah. 2018, <laughs> should we uh, should we make some predictions? Because there is one thing that is puzzling me about what political commentators are saying when they're thinking what's going to happen on Brexit, which is that um, everyone seems to say there's no way Theresa May is going to get the vote through. Mm-hmm. You know, when she, when she negotiates a deal, that she's going to really struggle. So, I don't understand why those commentators aren't aren't thinking about well, maybe May will just pull the vote, and maybe that vote's not going to happen this year. <laughs> That's a very far-sighted view. Uh, yeah. uh, Perhaps it's a good there. thing this is audio-only recording. <laughs> <laughs> so, Brexit. Um, watch, I mean, I, one of the things that a lot of people mention, but doesn't get talked about that very much beyond the initial point, is the, oh, if the government wasn't obsessed with Brexit, there were all these other things mm-hmm. that it could and should be doing. Yeah. Um, so what would you pick as, you know, if you were both miraculously in government yeah. and Brexit had disappeared... What would be top of your agenda for this is what the government should really worry about? What would be top of my agenda? Now, this is where I should have written down a list of uh, things. I'm covering my notes here so that you can't uh, see what I've written down. So, I mean, part of the trouble is, of course, it's across the feast. that Brexit is taking up all the time and energy of the government. So it's not just one subject that's suffering. It's pretty much Mm. uh, every topic. uh, And this is the huge opportunity cost of Brexit. I mean, regardless of what you think about it as a uh, topic, whether you voted for Remain or Leave, I'm guessing the majority of people who listen to this kind of uh, podcast are Remainers. But no matter which way you voted, it's just a huge... That requires at least three listeners, doesn't it? We're beginning to set the bar quite high. (laughs) (laughs) It's a huge time suck uh, on on government. So, uh, you know, let's just accept that it's... uh, both financially and in terms of time spent on subjects, it's an across-the-board problem. I guess uh, top of my agenda would be something quite unsexy, like uh, transport infrastructure. Um, you know, if you think of some of the big things that don't get debated very much or discussed, then transport is a, it's a boring subject to those people who aren't interested in it, and that's the majority. So everyone knows it's important. Three listeners no one wants to dropping talk about rapidly it. back down towards um, zero. So, <laughs> tracking it in real time now. Um, so yeah, I, that would be my top yeah. one. But in terms of, uh, and perhaps it's because I'm a commuter. Obviously, it's close to my heart. But I think uh, in Do terms you think of it economic get... connectedness, in terms of uh, trying to think about solve some of the productivity problems mm. that we have, it just connects so many different issues which are are key to our economic future. 
Do you think it doesn't get enough political attention, though? Because I guess one thing that strikes me is that over, if you look at the sort of the arc over the last 10 or 15 years, the things like investing in railways mm-hmm. has become a default good thing that politicians yeah. like to talk about in a way that 15 years ago they didn't really. Uh, and and it's it almost like there has been a, a degree to which the debate over the importance of investing in transport infrastructure yeah. has been won, and in particular viewing transport as more than simply roads. Uh, now, there's definitely not enough money to go around and all sorts of issues, but I'm not sure that there's a shortage of political attention really on the issue. Maybe uh, uh, buses. I mean, buses definitely buses, are, yeah, do get I'm, horribly looked down on and, and neglected. Well, but and to me, I mean, not as I will uh, agree with Jeremy Corbyn uh, again in this podcast, I suppose, but uh, the fact that he does major in on it so much at Prime Minister's Question Time uh, is partly because it is a key topic to particularly low paid yeah. workers and is a topic that whenever he raises it in the House of Commons you get, uh, you know, on my Twitter timeline all the kind of political commentators and sages going, why on earth is Jeremy Corbyn banging on about something like buses? No one cares about that, why isn't he talking about Brexit? And of course the reason is that lots of uh, quote, ordinary people, that dread phrase, yeah. do care about buses because mm-hmm. that's their everyday experience in a way that Brexit isn't. So on one level you're right. Um, I think the problem has tended to be that, as is often the case in politics, it's the shiny, shiny mm. of the new glitzy project, Crossrail HS2. Crossrail 2, Crossrail 3, uh, Crossrail 4. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anything that you can number um, mm. and is new. Uh, and expensive mm. and gonna that's where buses budget. go wrong because you can number them and they can be new <laughs> but they're not expensive enough so anything that goes over budget and over time uh, is uh, does get attention yeah. <clears throat> things like electrification of our existing railways which would make a huge amount more difference than something mm. glitzy like HS2 uh, in terms of mm. trying to connect towns more quickly etc uh, that doesn't get a look in and hasn't for years and that's partly because uh, it's an unsexy topic and it's partly because all the money is sucked up by the other glamorous And that is a, um, it's a good point actually to sort of slightly backtrack on what I said earlier the axing of electrification plans across a big chunk of northern England that happened not that long ago yeah, yeah. got very very little attention although I suspect that's more to do with it, it was northern England rather than it was transport if you well, see what I mean be, but, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's just the glitzy projects um, yep. Get, you get the coverage all right, but some of the more mundane but really important stuff just tends to get neglected. Yeah. And uh, I suspect we'll get more neglected as we get feel the pinch mm. from Brexit, both in terms of time and money. Which nicely segues. nicely segues to what I, the one I would pick, which is further education. Ah, the other one's going uh, and, on and quite deliberately further rather than higher education, yep. because yep. it is now about. And you're the expert on this, so you'll doubtless be <laughs> wincing as I mangle my statistics. But it is now around half of teenagers go to university, mm-hmm. which yeah. I make it therefore means about half don't go to university. Yeah. And yet political debate, and the Lib Dems have been guilty of this definitely in the past as much yeah. as anyone else, is massively concentrated on the now half, for a long time, minority mm-hmm. who go to university. And that minority are important, but that minority stroke half are exactly that. They are not... the overwhelming majority and also they are broadly speaking the better off Mm -hmm. half of the population and there is a huge neglect of education opportunities for everyone else Um, and I think that's important in its own right but also particularly important in terms of the way the world is changing that broadly speaking what technology is doing is abolishing more of the jobs 
that people who don't go to university used to do than the jobs that people who do go to university end up doing. Yeah. And so not only, I think, is it important in its own right, but if you sort of think, well, what is the country going to be like? What is the workforce going to be like? What is social inequality going to be like in decades to come? That question of broadening the educational opportunity, so they're gen genuinely for all teenagers and not just the minority, stroke half who go to university is really, really crucial. Yeah, yeah I do think, I mean, said that the Dems have been guilty, and I think we have, and I think, uh, well, it came back to Biden, didn't it? The skewed priority we had in terms of funding commitments to abolishing tuition fees. Ah, oh, you see, I think tuition fees are the equivalent surely for a political podcast like this of Brexit for anything else where the challenge has got to be can you get through a whole episode without mentioning it it's an oh, so close so close back. Stephen so any close any podcast it's going to come back to tuition fees at some point isn't it during the conversation uh, so, uh, but I think it is a, you're right it's a huge issue it's, it actually was number two on my list mm. um, that I've mentioned yeah. and I think a lot of it is because uh, the people uh, and I don't want to go into this kind of populist it's all about the uh, elites uh, and so on but there is a there is a grain of truth I think in, in the point about further education mm. that is uh, not many sons and daughters mm. of um, journalists and mm. uh, politicians go through that technical education mm. route and as a result it has been massively neglected and instead of uh, looking at that uh, there's been the focus instead on the uh, on, on the graduates of today and tomorrow. Mm. Now, I'm not trying to neglect that and say that they are unimportant, but the people who are thinking of going to university and have, are getting the grades to go to university are mostly going to make it okay in life later on mm. as well. Um, and we've got the astonishing fact that uh, in terms of... A fact! We have got a fact. 21 uh, minutes in, we're I deploying know. a fact. <laughs> Listeners beware. Uh, in terms of, Could we get jingles, uh, do you think? <laughs> in terms of young people who finish compulsory education at age 19, yeah. uh, who have been at some point eligible for free school meals, so who come from the poorest yeah. levels of society, a majority of those will leave school without the equivalent of five good GCSEs, including English and Maths. Mm. Now, the problem with that, of course, yeah. is you try and get into a decent job mm. that will pay you well mm. and have a secure yeah. career for life, or get into mm. uh, higher education or get into even a high-quality yeah. apprenticeship on those kinds of grades. I mean, uh, I'm not mocking these professions, yeah. but, you know, you need five yeah. GCSEs to become a tube driver. Yeah. Um, so it is a whole range of professions beyond uh, the kind of more middle-class yeah. ones we might associate with it that require those kind of grades. And yet we have half of those who come from the poorest uh, backgrounds who are excluded from them. And the people who don't come from that background, what proportion of them get... get the, those five GS, GCSEs. The other half. So it's, uh, so it's half, uh, half of uh, kids do and half kids don't, basically. Sorry, I meant oh, so of, of kids who don't come from, who, who have never qualified for free school meals during their life. You're asking for a second fact. Now, I am asking you? for a second fact. Yeah, we're going to have to edit this part of the podcast later so that I can snip in place the... Yeah. Uh, the or you could just record a whole series of different percentages... And we could just edit out one person. I, I heard, I think it was Nick Robinson do this once on, I think it was a show that was being recorded just before an election due to be broadcast the day after. And so he just reeled off. So it was a, 
awful, quite good, amazing yeah. result for the Conservatives in the election yesterday. Yeah, yeah. It's like when they uh, had the World Cup semi-final and uh, various newspapers were tweeting out the front pages that never existed mm. of, uh, of what the Sunday yeah. editions would have looked like. If Although the, the, the all-time genius in that is a the Guardian front page after a vote on VAT during the 1990s Conservative government when there was a big political rebellion over over uh, the level and, and, and extent of VAT which included triggering dramatic Lib Dem by-election victories and the like and there was a vote late at night in Parliament one day and the Guardian front page story on the fallout from the vote was written brilliantly because it made sense regardless of which way the vote the <laughs> night before had gone and was clearly written and had to go yeah, to print before the vote was known because that was back in the back in the days of the good old House of Commons when everyone thought we were sensible to vote at three in the morning while half drunk and the like. Sorry, uh, <clears throat> while three in the morning and completely of sharp facilities. I don't think the time of day is necessarily a barrier to uh, becoming drunk in the House of Commons as Eric Force once proved. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we've talked a bit about the Lib Dems and a bit about Brexit. Yeah, and I, tuition fees. And tuition fees, thank you, Stephen. So maybe maybe we should talk specifically about the Liberal Democrats and Brexit. And yep. it pains me to say it, but there is nothing more Lib Dem than a Lib Dem MP resigning the Lib Dem whip in order to vote <laughs> with the government on something that then doesn't actually get put to the vote. Yeah, for another few weeks, for another few weeks, it will come to the Indeed. Uh, so the backstory is Stephen Lloyd, mm-hmm. Liberal Democrat MP for Eastbourne, heavily leave voting area. Yep. During the general election where he won the seat, he made a commitment narrowly won the seat. to absolutely narrowly won the seat. He made a commitment to vote for Theresa May's Brexit deal. He has decided, uh, mindful actually, probably in part of things like tuition fees, mm-hmm. to stick with now. his promise, to stick with his promise and has therefore also, I think, done the honourable thing in a way of saying, look, this is a huge issue for the Lib Dems. It's going to cause a huge amount of flack if a Lib Dem MP votes with Theresa May. Therefore, he has resigned the whip, although not his party membership. Yeah, and I imagine the uh, resigning the whip will be a temporary state Mm. of affairs and that it will be... uh, you know, he'll be allowed to take it back again later. And I, I agree. I'm, I, I, and I saw a lot of criticism of him on various uh, Lib Dem activist uh, you know, Facebook groups and Twitter and, and various people saying, you know, in the lead-up, and I, I guess this is what was the background of him deciding to resign, is that he knew he was putting uh, the Lib Dem leadership in an awkward position by being potentially the one Lib Dem MP who would... Um, rebel mm. uh, and therefore mean that the Lib Dems were not united yeah. as a parliamentary party yeah, when Theresa May's meaningful vote uh, came to uh, came to House Commons. So uh, I think he was had the party's interests at heart, I guess. Um, mm. But also, I think, you know, like you say, we took a fair bit of flack over to These people may have heard of it. And given he made the commitment to vote for a deal mm. if it came back to the House of Commons, uh, I think he is doing the right thing. Uh, I, mean, I don't see how an alternative. The, the bit that I... I mean, I, I really like him. He's a really nice, personable chap. Um, he reads my blog, which obviously oh, also moves him up in my estimation. But, but he is he's genuinely one of the friendliest MPs I've met. Um, the thing, though, that I, I think I would sort of criticise him for is that election promise. I don't quite understand why he made a promise to vote for a deal at a point in which nobody knew what would be in the deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I suspect there was a little bit of political room for manoeuvre there for him to have left himself uh, uh, the option of saying, I want to see what's in the deal. 
but as long as it's a deal that worked, da 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 da, and that therefore yeah. with all the backstop stuff would have given him mileage maybe to vote differently. But I think that sort of committing to definitely support something that you don't yet know the details of, I was a little bit surprised when I sort of was catching up on exactly what he had said at the election. I can understand why. Did, I can understand why he did it because I imagine any kind of you know caveat mm. that he'd inserted would have been seized upon by his conservative opponents and exploited for what it's worth. So I can understand if you are trying to win back your marginal seat that you held for a few years. And lost the last election, then the uh, incentive to give a blank check is that much greater. Uh, and, and we saw something similar, of course, when it came to the Article 50 vote um, before the 2017 election was called, and MPs basically giving the Prime Minister carte blanche to come back with anything in whatever time she likes, and uh, that, that didn't go so well, did it? Yeah, so but that, that was a bit different, though, wasn't it? Because you either. Because when you're voting to sort of invoke Article 50, you're 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 voting. They were voting to start a process, which yeah. would then come back to them. Voting to so say I'm going to vote for the deal at the end of the process, despite yet not knowing what it's going to be. That's a bit different from saying I'm going to vote to kick off a process. They were, isn't they it? were kicking off a time-limited process mm. uh, at a time when they hadn't actually secured the agreement to have a meaningful vote. I think oh, right in saying. Yeah. So, oh, and very foolish in that respect. Um, but I think so it's probably a bit so different. So basically, with a blank check, um, mm. but. But I'm like, you know, I, I think Stephen Lloyd, he's done the right thing, yeah. I think. Uh, and it's interesting the Theresa May deal, because I, the best description I've heard of it um, so far uh, was that it's, uh, it's the closest that comes to probably what people voted for, which was basically remain minus free movement of people. Uh, now, that is a gross mm. oversimplification of what's in the withdrawal agreement, of course, uh, but it's got an essence of truth. Uh, so I can understand why, and OK, he shouldn't have given her a blank cheque maybe, but I can understand why he feel that this deal is something that abides by what he feels was the will of the people, at least in his mm. constituency. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously a lot of controversy over to what extent the Leave vote was motivated by immigration mm -hmm. or not, but I think that clearly is Theresa May's take on it, yeah. isn't it? And that's why other apparently reasonably straightforward and sensible options, ones which I would still disagree with because I believe that the EU is the best option, but that's why things like the Norway type option seem to have been ruled out, is that you know she is taking as her starting point, freedom, freedom of movement has to end. But even something like the Norway, I mean, like, you know, obviously I would, as also a Remainer, would agree that uh, remaining is better, but even something like Norway, well, let's remember during the referendum campaign itself, mm. it was something that the Leave campaign ruled out. Mm. Now, of course they they weren't campaigning on a manifesto as such. They don't have a mandate that extends yeah. beyond the referendum itself. But I do remember very clearly Michael Govan, Boris Johnson, standing up and saying, we do not want yeah. to be Norway because you become a rule-taker, not yeah. a rule-maker. And, and that is the thing that actually really puzzles me about the Norway option, is why the Norwegians like it. Uh, it and it's one of these things that frustrates me quite often about political news coverage, is that there's often a very conventional not actually particularly political point of view, not an Overton window type point, but just a very conventional range of questions that, that journalists think are worth yeah. writing articles to try to answer. And, and the point that under the Norwegian setup, you are a rule taker, not a rule maker, sounds like quite a good criticism of it. Yet the Norwegians have decided to stick with this. They've had its two referendum, haven't they? Yeah. Referenda, referendums. You decide. Tweet your disagreements at <laughs> Stephen, not at me, over what, what the correct term should be for that. So the Norwegians have twice had a chance to vote for something other than the Norwegian option and have rejected it. 
And so I am intrigued. I, I had a little bit of a dig, and I will, might even dig further over Christmas, to just find out what the Norwegian take is on why they quite like that option. Because yeah. as you say, it, it, it sounds like a really quite a bad deal, particularly as actually it, you know, Norway would probably... Um, it's probably in a weaker position than Britain would be if Britain had, was, had the Norwegian option as well, in the sense that uh, there are more supply chains that are integrated between Britain and the continent and so on, and mm-hmm. that, that generally you would think in, in that you have to take the rules, but maybe you can get to shout and scream a bit and hopefully people will listen to you, that, that Norway has probably got quite a weak voice yeah. I, compared I think, to on what, at least yeah. some issues what Britain would have. So, so I, am, I am really intrigued as to why the Norwegians like the Norwegian option. I think there are two interesting points there in particular. One is, uh, I think you're right on the media coverage uh, generally, and uh, I'm certainly not going to join in BBC bashing, um, but programmes like the Today programme, mm. uh, I am going to bash because they have not gone into mm. any kind of depth. Yeah. About and the BBC, news. after all, is, is the sort of news outlet that can actually have a journalist in Norway, and you sort of think, come on, there must be... And to be fair, there have been one or two quite good bits of journalism around what is the border between, say, Norway and Sweden really like. But, come on, tell us why the Norwegians like the Norwegian option. And this is uh, just to, you know... Sounds uh, like a really bad 1970s espionage thriller, the Norwegian option. (laughs) This is uh, just to round back on my... uh, uh, Social media's made everything worse, Colin, which I don't particularly agree with, but nonetheless I'll persevere with. Uh, You know, too often I feel that uh, broadcast media, including the BBC... Uh, and obviously newspapers, follow that kind of agenda which sees everything through the prism of the Westminster horse mm. race and is this going to mm. affect Theresa May's leadership, which is interesting enough. I'm not saying it shouldn't be covered. It is new. Now you've made but, a mistake there, Stephen. But, you've made a big mistake because can you guess what a chapter in the book that I'm attempting to finish writing? Are you writing a book? I, no. I am indeed. Can't can you? Oh, this is... Thank what, you for the setup, Stephen. We are a dream basketball team in a way, aren't we? I, I honestly Perfect thought we would get to your book before we got to tuition fees. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, indeed. Given that we failed on the tuition fees challenge, we've got to fail on the book challenge. Possibly out in... Well, actually, I was going to say no bookshop, but we are sat recording this in a bookshop, which when I last looked, and I didn't look today, I promise, but when I last looked, <laughs> did actually have a copy of a book with my name on the spine on the shelf, which still gives me a little bit of a childish glee. But I am attempting to write a book on how to understand the news, and this obsession with the political horse race is yeah. indeed one of one of the points in there, made not nearly as interestingly and eloquently as you. So I may be lifting some quotes from this podcast to recycle in that book chapter, if nothing else. That, that gives me great confidence in your research, that uh, <laughs> exactly. my riff comments on a podcaster. Um, so yeah, anyway, sorry, the, the, the news media I think has failed us. I think on Norway, um, it's interesting, as a point of a future Lib Dem policy, that, uh, you know, assuming we do leave, and who knows what will happen, as we record, we certainly don't know, no one knows. Um, but but recording leave, early in September, I think the... <laughs> The thing to watch out for is Theresa May pulling the vote. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think you're Commentators uh, are underrating the odds. Value bet if you can, you know, go and place a bet online, well, I, I would, I'm that's gonna, my recommendation. I'm going to naked down Whitehall if that comes true, I'll tell you. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but I think there is a problem. Yeah, once we've left, as to what becomes the position then, uh, because of mm. course we will lose all the current benefits we have through our current deal in terms of opt-out mm. from bits that uh, politicians haven't yeah. liked down the years. Uh, in terms of you know Schengen zone, in terms of single, uh, uh, in terms of single currency, all those things that have meant that Britain has the best going, best deal of any country in the whole of Europe, will end 
and I can't imagine there's a situation in which Europe, if we did decide to reapply, would say, oh yeah, go on, we can have all those back again as well, don't worry about it. Um, so almost certainly, if and when we campaign for uh, European membership in the future, we will have to face the arguments which I imagine the Norwegians are facing when they make their pitch for becoming a member of the European Union again, which is that you become a member of the City of Currency yeah. and Schengen and all these kinds of uh, things, which is easier, easy to mobilise populist arguments against. Yeah. So I don't know the Norwegian situation nearly well enough, but I think it's much harder to argue as a rich European country to enter in to the European Union without those kinds of special privileges knocked out. The free yeah. uh, So I suspect that you know once we're out... Maybe in my lifetime we'll go back in, um, but it's going to be a hugely difficult argument to mount because we're going to be going back in on a on a worse membership level than we currently have. Mm. I, I, I guess the the one possible cause for optimism in that is, depending how much strain there is in the EU, the idea of a country that has left rejoining may be very attractive to some countries in the EU in terms of the the message that provides to other countries who might be thinking about do we want to leave, do we not, etc. Better uh, than sin- Exactly. And therefore, there may well be a certain attraction for saying, OK, we really don't like the combo of the deal that the UK previously had, but yeah. we can genuinely say a former member rejoining is a special case and therefore we you will agree right, to rejoin you, on previous may, terms, I, perhaps. I like to, that, that's a, an optimistic view and it may well be right. It'd be nice to think so. Nonetheless, we were still, I mean, as we found uh, during the referendum campaign last time with the uh, scaremongering about Turkey's joining the European Union, there will still be, uh, in terms of the campaign that opposes it, there will still be all sorts of scare, yeah. scare stories that can be peddled around the fact that, yeah, of course they said there won't be any single currency, but you can bet the pound will be abolished if we rejoin the I, Given the how Union. most people wisely spend not very much time paying attention to politics, and therefore don't know very much about basic political things. A bit like the way I know very little about hockey. It's always the example I like giving, because I only start paying attention once every four years when the Olympics is on. And if Britain does well, or if it's England, I'm not even sure if it's England or Britain, I start being able to even maybe name some of the players, and then I forget it all again. But given, therefore, how little most people know about politics, I love the thought that somewhere out there are probably quite a few people who, hearing your comment about Turkey think you were referring to the animal, not the country. Well, yeah, we're recording this uh, episode in September. We can only hope that Christmas is coming soon and you know, there won't be turkeys waiting for Christmas. And on that note, I think we should bid our one remaining listener goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>